Hi folks, Peter here. We had some audio issues with the initial version of this podcast, so I have gone back and rebalanced some of the tracks to hopefully make the experience a little less jarring. We also get into some kind of harsh content from the Old Testament, the story of Dinah specifically, late in the episode, so you may want to be aware of that if you usually listen with kids. That should be it. Enjoy the episode. This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing games and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Monday, February 10th of 2020, it's episode 171. In this episode, Ashley Mowers and Derek White join Peter to talk about vanquishing evil, plus Disney princesses at the gaming table, cultural greeting differences, the parable of the wheat and the tares, pacifism as a calling, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Peter. I'm Ashley. And I'm Derek. And as you may notice, we do not have Grant or Jenny. Uh, Grant is sick, and Jenny is dealing with the joys of civic bureaucracy. I leave it as an exercise to the listener as to which one of them has it worse, but uh, hopefully by next time you will hear them both back and they will have both recovered from their respective ordeals. So tonight uh, we've got a, a kind of an interesting episode. Um, one of our higher tier backers gave us this topic as his custom Patreon reward. And um, since I didn't have my co-host with me, I have brought in the big guns. So I've got Ashley Mowers from the MinMax podcast, and I've got Derek the Geek Preacher White here with me. And uh, they're just going to be joining me as regular hosts on this particular episode. How you guys been? That is an interesting question with a lot of answers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I probably should have asked something else as an icebreaker. but <laughs> no, It's okay. It's a perfectly natural question to ask. It's kind of like when we've been going to new churches and people are like, so where are you from? And we're like, huh. Just pull out Johnny Cash's I've Been Everywhere. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, all things considered, with all the moving that's been happening, we're doing pretty well. Well, that's good. I'm I'm glad to hear that you're doing all right. <laughs> it's cool to have you back in a similar time zone. I actually I think you're in the same time zone as me for the first time in what, like a year and a half or something yeah, like that. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. It's nice, but it's also still funny because I, I'm still used to being six hours ahead of most of my friends. So when I get Text back in real time, it really throws me off. <laughs> I'm like, why are you up? There's like, no Ashley. lag anymore. Oh, wait, that's because we're on the same side of the planet. Right. Well, I have to keep myself from calculating six hours ahead. So when people are like, oh, can you come to XYZ thing? I'm like, um, well, I don't know if I can like log in at that time. We'll probably be asleep. And they're like, Ashley, you're in central time now. I'm like, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious hey at least you're not jet lagged anymore right you got that over it's with? true okay yeah i did it, and it's it's funny because it was easier coming back than it was going to scotland going to scotland it, it took a good two weeks to kind of reacclimate um coming back it was just like two days of kind of sleepiness as if i had pulled an all-nighter which kind of did um that's not too then bad once that yeah exactly once the, like the moderate sleepiness for two days was over we we're pretty good how about you, Derek? How have you been? Uh, been doing great, uh, I guess. Uh, you know, uh, things are gearing up. I'm getting ready to head to GaryCon in about six weeks, and I still have uh, two uh, adventures I'm actually writing this year for the convention, 
And while I have the general storyboard, that's it. Oh, boy. <laughs> so I still have uh, some work to do on that and to get the rules down a little bit better because I've played in Call of Cthulhu a number of times, but I've only ran it one time in the course of my life. And I think that was a D20 version of Call of Cthulhu at that time. So hmm. I'm actually using the Call of Cthulhu 7th edition rules. Uh, otherwise, things are going really good. Uh, I uh, moved last year over here to Madison, Tennessee, which is uh, part of Nashville, Tennessee, and am enjoying it a whole lot. Having a lot of fun. Get to play. Uh, first time in forever I'm getting to play in a game on a regular basis. So I'm playing in at least one or two games once a month. Going to get to play test a game pretty soon, but I can't say which one that is publicly. Fair enough. Uh, so uh, lots of good gaming stuff going on at our church. We're about to host our first board game day this Sunday. Nice. It's like, dude, I've been doing this for 12, 13 years, and I'm finally at a church that came to me. I didn't go to them. They came to me and said, hey, can we have a board game day at church? And I'm like, you, you, why are you asking me? Well, don't we need permission for that? I said, even if you need permission, who are you talking to? Yeah. It's like, um, you do you know, know what my nickname is, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's not a nickname. It's a nom de guerre. Okay. Well. Oh. <laughs> In any case. <laughs> the only French I know, nom de guerre. I have a nom de guerre. Yeah. Like, you just asked that pastor if you could have a board game day. Did you yeah, think the answer I, I think was going to be no? <laughs> I, it, that was the best part. I know they did that on purpose to see my reaction. I mean, I was literally almost in tears. My eyes were watering Aww. because that's what Southern men do. We don't cry. Our eyes water. <laughs> you know, so. You missed yeah, it would have been really funny if you're just like, ah, I don't know if I can get behind that, guys. I got a lot of concerns. Just fake them out a little bit. Yeah. Oh, they would have known. Come on, <laughs> they they knew within. The funny part was when I I first met with this church before I was assigned here. Uh, you know, uh, my district superintendent told them, you know, Derek ministers to the gaming community, and the problem is whenever a district superintendent has told the church like that. The first question I get is how often do you go to the casinos? <laughs> Never wrong kind of gaming. Yeah. yeah. No. yeah what yeah. kind and of so gaming do you mean? Explain. Oh, the kind that you really aren't going to approve of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like, uh, so you work with people with gambling addictions, right? No. Like, well, <laughs> maybe, but that's not specifically the problem. Well, I suppose you know. if they ask what kind of games do you play and you respond with the games with dice, that doesn't help either. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Although, honestly, <laughs> with this being Derek, I mean, like, where's the uh, the D&D ampersand tattoo? Is that, isn't that one on your forearm? You could just roll up a sleeve and be like, hi. <laughs> yeah, usually my sleeves are rolled up. They either see the Green Lantern tattoo or the D&D tattoo, and they're like, what is going on with this guy? <laughs> so I was like, yeah. So there you go. Hey, gotta, gotta stretch those parishioners a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it, it's a good place. I'm in a really good place. Wonderful, loving people here. Uh, wonderful folks. I've pl already played games with with a few of them. 
it, it's been a blast. It's been a, it, and so I'm really enjoying it. Uh, you know, when you're in a geek affirming community, that that is great. But there are also quite a number of people here that aren't just geek affirming. There's also uh, some uh, LGBTQ affirming people here. So it is a wonderful accepting church. And I, I'm so happy to be a part of that. I'm glad you found a church where you actually fit in well for a change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's rare. It's rare. It's rare. I mean, you've done okay with your last few, but it sounds like this one is your tribe. It's probably a better way of putting it. So, There's lots of folks here. Yeah, and, and plus being around Nashville, you know, like I was mentioning before the show, uh, you know, uh, uh, every geek has their own thing. You know, there are music geeks around Nashville like crazy. Oh, yeah. And and music geeks love games, and they love D&D, they love storytelling. So uh, so we've got a couple of young guys been attending the church. They're both uh, sound and audio people for uh, a number of bands. So they're here maybe once or twice a month because of that. And they're like, oh, dude, you play D&D? Cool. And so we're talking about D&D, and we talk about MMORPGs and video games and stuff. So in, in areas like Nashville, you see that more accepted, especially when there's a heavy music scene. Cool. Very nice. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's give you guys one of the questions that our Patreon subscriber sent us and see what you do with this. I'm, I'm kind of interested to see what we come up with here. <laughs> okay. Oh, no. All right. This is from David Hastings. Which Disney princess would you want to GM a game for you? As a <laughs> GM, which would you want to be one of your players? Oh my goodness, okay. Lord. Okay. I think as a this... I think as a GM, I would want Belle because she seems to be the most well read. So I think okay. she could come up with some like really clever, interesting, very deep sort of narratives uh yeah that's who i think i'd want to gm me as far as a player i'd like to gm for that's tricky maybe ariel because she seems to me the most excitable so i just feel good about myself all the time okay derek i'll let you hit the second because i'm having to ponder this a little bit Okay, uh, now I'm, I'm going to go a little off-kilter in one way. I would like to GM Cinderella, but not the Cinderella from the Disney movies, but the Cinderella that Drew Barrymore played. Hmm. From okay. Ever After? Yes, in Ever After, because I liked that character. She really learned how to not take any crap off anybody. I, that's the kind of Cinderella I want to play. So if I had to choose one, it, it, it might be Belle as well, if I had to go with strict Disney interpretations, because mm -hmm. Belle, Belle was a strong character. And I, I like GMing people who are strong characters and really try and take charge of their lives. So that's a big one. Yeah. Who would I like to GM me? That is a tough one. Who I would like to be my GM. Man, I'm I'm trying to think. Oh, well, I love Scottish accents. So what was the Merida? girl's name in Brady? Merida. Yeah. Merida. Merida. She would be a great GM because there would be a lot of combat. And since we're going to be talking about some of that later, uh, I love a lot of good combat. And she would run a combat-centered game. So she could probably really GM some D&D &D like crazy. 
Okay, I'm going to pull out a couple of deep cuts here. So th this is good. We're all going to have kind of different answers. Uh, for the GM, uh, uh, what was her name from Princess and the Frog? I'm, I had Tiana? Tiana, yes, thank you. Because she's It's okay. Like, it's just, you know, like childhood. Uh, it wasn't Having like, to I be indoctrinated in when all. It came out. <laughs> no, no, no. I was an adult too. I'm just saying, like, I think growing up where everyone like wants you to be into Disney princesses and like Disney movies were all the VHSs we had. It's just like a track you get into. Yeah. So you just know <laughs> after a while. <laughs> yeah. I, I like Tiana because she's got a lot of like life experience and stuff. And that tends to make for good GMs. They tend to be able to um, think on their feet well and that sort of thing. As far as uh, somebody who's really going to get into character, you can't do much better than Mulan. That's true. Like she she spent oh. the entire movie playing somebody who was utterly different from who she actually thought she was at the beginning anyway, and did an absolutely fantastic job with that. So I think it would be cool to let her like pull out the the skills that made her so good at convincing everybody else that she was somebody she wasn't mm -hmm. and just let her use those in a much lower stress, lower stakes kind of way and just have fun with it instead of it being a survival and honor thing. So yeah. That would be my Tiana and Mulan. All right, we've got some scripture here, and then we have an interesting topic to discuss here. So who wants what? We've got a pretty good selection here. Genesis, Genesis 6, verses 5 through 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. This is Genesis 19, 23-26. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. The Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying those living in the cities, and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Psalm 92, verses 9 through 11. For surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. Proverbs 25, 21 to 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it is said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, so uh, Ashley and Derek, I have brought you on to discuss another kind of thinky heavy one. Um, we've got as our, the basis for our topic, this one little question slash statement that we got from Joseph Lenarden, and that is, 
I thought up a topic after reading Psalm 92. Is killing evil in tabletop gaming inherently bad or wrong? After reading, I feel as though that is not the case. I believe that God wants to vanquish evil, be that by converting, redevoting, purging through death, or really whatever creative ways my small scope can't imagine. So, we got a bit to unpack there. Um, I think. Oh, you're talking about it's like super chill, easy, fun, super fun, <laughs> yeah. easy, yeah, chill a, question. That's a nice fluffy question, right? There's no, yeah, there's totally. no meat on those bones. That's just some <laughs> cotton candy. <laughs> I just love it that I'm usually on this show and we end up talking about violence every time I'm on here or demons, violence or demons. So uh, I, I'm just wondering if I'm. Be- you're you're our you you're our Solomon Kane. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that is the best compliment i think i've ever received i love solomon kane uh in fact that is a great segue into dealing with violence there i mean what a powerful character uh because the violence that solomon kane deals with and what robert e howard put in his works evil was evil there weren't any shades of gray in this. There was no redemption for that kind of evil and wiping it out wasn't a problem. There, there's no moral qualms about destroying something that was purely unredeemable, something perfectly evil. Oh my goodness. Wow. Look at you, Peter, just <laughs> dropping that bomb. Uh, you know, I've been doing this for seven and a half years. I've, I've learned a few tricks. <laughs> You're awesome. You're awesome. <clears throat> um, I, I do think, though, that the, like the, the reference back to Solomon Cain kind of brings up a, an important point here, though, because um, there's there's a difference between doing violence unto evil in a fantasy or in any sort of fictional context and the rules about that sort of thing in the real world. Right. I mean, a lot of the time in our games, we've got stuff that is created specifically as something that you can womp on without any like moral qualms or moral gray there because that's that's fun you know the, the the combat portions of the game are fun that goes back to our patreon question even like you'd, you'd want merida as a, a gm because she'd run some really good combats oh yeah definitely definitely and you know it, but but the opening questions are really good one i mean you know you know what does it mean to destroy evil and you know, how do we go about destroying evil, especially in narrative based games? That's a that's some heavy stuff. Ashley, you got any initial thoughts here? I mean, y- yeah, a few. I, I mean, without knowing this person at all or anything, I'm just curious as to how they would specifically define evil, because I always find that when people have these conversations, they have a very particular idea in mind of who is and isn't evil. Um, and that helps unpack a lot more as to what va- vanquishing that evil then looks like to them. And then we can have a further discussion as to um, what justice looks like, um, especially justice within a Christian community. Because a lot of the time when people are discussing um, violence and evil, what they really have is just a really strong sense of justice. And they, they want to have an outlet for that. They want to feel like they have some sort of recourse to enact justice for others and that's a good and holy thing to want to instate justice and impart justice and be able to you know protect others those are good things but sometimes 
our sense of justice can be misplaced or or disordered in some way that then actually causes injustice or um, does not actually promote or inspire dignity, the dignity of humanity. And those are my concerns a lot of the time. And when it comes to, to violent, violence and nonviolence, um, both in life and in gaming. Yeah, I, I think um, <clears throat> I think you hit on a really good point with like, how do you define evil? Because in some cases you're talking about we're reacting to specific behaviors that we've seen in the game, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you come across um, some, you know, villainous group. I'll I'll use the Vanarax in the campaign I'm running on Sundays just as an example. They're this big, powerful empire. Uh, they're ruled by like this terrifying super dragon, basically, and they're just conquering their way across the world with fire and blood. So there's a lot of like outrage there. You know, it's like you come across and you every time you bump into these people, they're trying to do something awful. They're trying to free this shackled monster. They're trying to like capture this, you know, this other community. There's a, a whole slave ship that, you know, they've gotten. There's a bunch of soldiers just kind of verbally and physically abusing the slaves and you know, it's stuff that like you invoke that sense of justice in your players because you want to to give them first the catharsis of being able to, you know, I was the one who did justice here. And second, so you can get into the fun mechanical side of the game. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder, though, like if there's I guess we're getting on the other side of the GMing screen already, like if maybe we shouldn't be a little more careful with that stuff than we are as GMs. And like, cause it can be very tempting to, to present this very clear cut view of, you know, this black and white world. And a lot of the time, even people who are despicable in the real world, at least think they're doing something that should be done. I mean, their, their priorities are way out of whack a lot of the time, but, and I guess also before we continue on from there, I also want to touch on like, We've talked about racial alignments a few times on this podcast and how they kind of bother several of us. And I I think um, going into a situation where it's like, well, we can kill them because they're orcs and all orcs are bad. And it's like, they're other sapient beings. Are you sure about that? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, I mean, when you say this, I I think of this passage and I, I just remembered this passage from Ezekiel. Uh, And I'm reading from the New King James because that's where I found it the quickest, uh, is Ezekiel 33.11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? I mean, that's a powerful statement. And I, I think in our gaming and I've been guilty of this. I think many have been guilty of this is rejoicing in the death of the wicked. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and we do that in our culture. We do that when we watch John Wick. I mean, I love the John Wick movies. I can't. Yeah, they're help really it. fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when the bad guys get killed and slaughtered, I, you know, sometimes I rejoice in that. And then after I watch the movie, there's this twinge of guilt in me because the idea is that we don't, re- if, if God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked, why should we? So in a game, if, you know, you're trying to rescue the slaves on the slave ship, and if they fight back, you have to kill the bad guys if they're fighting back. If they say, okay, we give up, here they are, then you don't kill them. You know, we do, and, and again, 
you know, in a game, sometimes if you treat orcs as sentient, intelligent beings who are not tied to any alignment, yeah, you got to let the orcs live. You know, orcs can change. Uh, if you uh, if you treat them like beasts who are mindless beasts with nothing like that, then, you know, that's like, you know, it's like killing a rabid dog. If that's the way they are, but if they're sentient, intelligent beings and you want to play in a game as a Christian, you just can't go through and wholesale slaughter everything. And that's also where good role playing comes in, too. And, I mean, that's part of a role playing game is making sure that you're not doing that. You're not just killings want, you know, no murder hobos. Okay. <laughs> You know, there's no just going through and murder hoboing everybody just for the fun of it. Uh, for some people, I think that that can be a healthy outlet. But at the same time, you know, I as a Christian find that troublesome when you don't have a problem just doing wanton, wanton slaughter. Mm -hmm. You know, that can be problematic. And that's where morality comes in our play. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of interesting because like way back when I first started gaming, there was a lot of just like you you treated like groups of enemies like the enemies in a computer strategy game where the mission wasn't over until they were all dead, right? And right. the the character that I'm playing in Grant's Saturday game is not quite as angsty about violence as that cleric Lambert that I've talked about a number of times on here, <laughs> but like we still did like. Okay, so this was this was interesting because there's a little bit of both sides. Like, he went in and he wanted revenge for the the death of a friend of his. It was part of like the adventure hooks and stuff, and so he went in with the the goal of doing that. And it's like it was kind of an interesting. I I kind of felt that same like twinge of guilt that you were talking about with the John Wick movies because it's this is the first time since I really kind of reexamined my feelings about violence that I played a character that was vengeful. You know, Lambert was occasionally kind of pragmatic about violence, but Sigvard was actually vengeful. And that was kind of like, oh, I'm not so sure I like the taste of this as much. They did wind up getting like a pretty sizable number of the bandits to surrender and just kind of like go disperse. Don't be bandits anymore, at least not around here. But how about you, Ashley? Well, it's funny that you guys bring up John Wick because I actually really like John Wick not because necessarily of the narrative or the the um, the reasons for for Wick's actions, but more the actual technical aspect of the choreography of the fight scenes. That's what I why I watch John Wick because I find that fascinating and really weirdly um, beautiful because it is choreography. So it's almost like a dance. So some of the things yeah. that they manage to technically oh, yeah. um, figure out is what's fascinating to me. Um, and yeah, obviously the the violence is very obvious. It's everything that it's about, but I somehow, just like with a lot of things regarding like sex and nudity and other other um, things in the media that we often talk about as Christians and try to decide oh, what's worth uh, investing in or not, I've just somehow managed to separate the two. And I don't know if it's because of my previous work in entertainment that I've just had to think of the technical so much that I'm just kind of like divested of a lot of that when it comes to media but um when it comes to gaming um my husband still continues to be my favorite dm because uh he never lets a death like go just as like a um 
a success in battle, he always makes the party feel the weight of the death. He just never lets us off easy. Um, hmm. And I appreciate that in a lot of ways, uh, even if it's somebody like um, Peter in your um, STG article about um, Auntie Bloat. Is that what her name was? Auntie Bloat, yeah. Yeah. Um, even if it was a character like that, he would make us feel the weight of having to choose, make that choice, make that moral choice. And that's always fascinating to me um, as somebody who feels called to pacificity or pacifism, not pa- not with a V, but with an F. Um, it's easier to see when you read the words and compare them. But um, <laughs> because in game, like you said, you're not playing as yourself. There's some bleed, um, but you're still wrestling with those moral choices. And and there's a relationship between pacifism and a life of nonviolence that you can get into in philosophy and whatnot. Um, and I'm sure Derek has some thoughts on this as well. And they typically diverge in two places. So pacifism being like a moral, focused on the moral, and then nonviolence being focused on the efficacious. Um, and both can get pretty... Um, pretty uppity in their places and luckily i think derek and i are in relatively healthy places with our positions on on violence and nonviolence, uh which i'm grateful for because that helps the conversation but in game i'm constantly pushing into narratives or choosing characters who are very unlike myself to kind of test my own thoughts about things so i don't get into my own head about these like moral quandaries and actually think about what it means to live them out and what that cost is, and what I would actually be asking people to do when when I'm talking about nonviolence in the life of of pacifism. Um, And I find gaming really helpful, because even though it's still technically a theoretical space, because Alan is so good at tying our emotions to everything we're doing, it often feels very real. And and no, no choice ever feels like it's just a gaming decision. It really feels like a weighty sort of What's my argument for this decision in game? And so it's been a really helpful and I would say healthy exercise, um, a theological exercise in a lot of ways. Um, and I still I still wrestle with it a, a lot of the time in every single character I have. Yeah, I wow. I think another thing too that you're talking about, like Alan making uh, making you feel the weight of the the various yeah. you know characters that you've had to kill over the the course of your gaming career. And I think that brings up another thing where it's like we are often conditioned in gaming to go to violence first, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes that's even like a system thing. If you open, you know, the fifth edition D&D book up and I love 5e D&D and playing in one game and running another or actually run, playing in two games if you count City on a Hill, which is an actual play. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's so wired into there. Like yeah. the game is literally about killing stuff and getting loot for it mm-hmm. it's that's that's the <laughs> loop you know i mean sub- subsequent editions have added more narrative layers on top of it but at a fundamental level D is about like that thing over there needs to die you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and so in the city on a hill game when the when the entire party is so incredibly reluctant about violence and just like basically refuses to kill like, we'll knock somebody down and then instantly cast Spare the Dying on them. You know, it's like as mm-hmm. soon as they hit the ground, it's like, okay, you're not dying today. We just needed to stop you. 
And it's really interesting to contrast that kind of a dynamic with, you know, your your standard kind of a little bit like more rough and tumble D&D party with like a vengeance paladin and this, you know, grizzled tough fighter and like a fire sorcerer and like a war cleric that, you know, wants to go out and, you know, smite evil. And it's it's interesting to kind of like, well, you know, it's wired into the system. But that doesn't mean that you have to use the system at every single opportunity. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it is definitely wired into the system to uh, kill stuff, get their loot, and move on. That's that's the nature of the game. That's the nature of, and video games took that from D and D. It's it's all about that, and I think that. Actually, Dungeons and Dragons teaches us that the easy answer is always violence. Because violence is the easy answer. Trying to work toward peace is the harder answer. Trying to uh, work out a non-violent solution is much more difficult. If you get in my face and are yelling at me or screaming at me, and it, it is much easier to just hit you or try and knock you out or take you out than it is to try and work through that solution peacefully and nonviolently. And you, you see that in almost every D&D game because uh, if, if I just, you know, Oh man, I can't pick the right clues. I can't, I'm not making the right rolls to persuade this monster. I'm not able to, uh, I'm just not in the mood for it. I just want to just get through this challenge and I'll just bull my way through it. And I bull my way through it by killing everything that's in my path. That's easy. Yeah. It is much harder to work toward nonviolence. It's much harder to work toward peace. And I think the problem is, is that, that reward, the reward for working through something peacefully and nonviolently takes place so far down the road, there's not that sense of immediate gratification than it is to kill the monster and go, oh, look at all the pretty shiny. Well, yeah. that's particularly difficult when you have such a hard time scheduling a party regularly to play. So yeah. that makes sense. If you have a long-term sort of goal of playing peacefully um, and the rewards are, you know, I would argue greater, but still much further in the future, you're going to have a hard time convincing a party that that's worth it if they can only meet so so infrequently. Well, and I think it's also important to note that sometimes the system really doesn't give you any choice at all. Like there's an, mm -hmm. a number of things in the monster manual that aren't evil but they're stupid and hungry and they're just going to eat you if you don't, you know, fight back or escape or something. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, you know, there's like probably like the, the two different types of violence. I know we're, we're mostly dealing with kind of like the um, fighting against evil in this. But, you know, sometimes you have to, to shoot the bearer. It's going to eat you and your kids. I want to get to something else here. What do you guys think about like... you? Sometimes like you can you can be peaceful, but that doesn't necessarily neutralize the evil. I'm I'm thinking kind of like to the, the parable of the weed and the tares back in Matthew, where like the weeds and the wheat are allowed to grow next to each other and mm -hmm. aren't separated until, you know, the harvest. How do you what do you make of that in a gaming context, if anything? Hmm. 
And while you guys are thinking, let me read this off just so that if any listeners are unfamiliar. This is just uh, Matthew 13, uh, 24 to 29. Uh, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Well, you know, the the fun part about this, that you went to the Gospel of Matthew, for those of us who are lectionary preachers, for those who don't know what a lectionary is, a uh, lectionary is a three-year cycle where you go through the uh, Bible in a three-year cycle, and you should preach through those texts uh, for my great, wonderful Episcopalian friends with whom I have much, much solidarity, solidarity, <laughs> Episcopalians and Anglicans, uh, uh, they uh, actually read four scriptures every Sunday. Uh, if I could get away with that in my United Methodist Church, I would. Uh, this year's cycle is the Gospel of Matthew. And I have been uh, working with a friend today who's sitting in the room listening quietly uh, and can only hear my side of the conversation. But we've been working on preparing sermons for Lent. And I have my commentary here called Matthew and the Margins, a socio-political and religious reading of the Gospel of Matthew by the wonderful scholar Warren Carter, which I've been using in my preaching. So I have, some, I have thoughts uh, from Warren Carter <laughs> on that passage. Uh, the master declares an enemy has done this, but forbids the slaves to remove weeds now lest they uproot the wheat. They are to wait until the harvest when the reapers will collect the weeds first and burn them and then gather the wheat into the barn. How are we to interpret this parable? One way is to see the whole scene as depicting God's empire, its presence, its coexistence with evil, the opposition it provokes, its culmination. This approach begins to draw equivalencies between aspects of the parable and realities outside the parable. It anticipates the allegorizing of the parable, which the gospel itself, da 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 I won't get into that. But the whole point is, is that at the end of it, the tares will be destroyed. The tares do receive destruction. There is that coexistence. But as you read Matthew's gospel, and as you read the gospel of Jesus, one of the interesting things is, we believe tares can be supernaturally transformed into wheat. One yep. of the things when they're growing is that a tear can become wheat. How does that happen? That does not happen naturally. That happens through the transforming power of God's spirit through Jesus Christ. So why do we let evil grow amongst us? So that that evil might eventually be redeemed. There you go. Sermon 101. <laughs> well, and, and on top of that as well, when people read that, they automatically assume they are the wheat. Right. <laughs> Amen, sister. Speak for Amen. yourself, Ashley. <laughs> this, this is true. We do have Peter here. <laughs> 
Peter, Peter's got too much of that Calvinism in him, you know, still. We got to get some of that out of him. I don't know if I'm redeemed or not. Man's got the warmest heart I know and still acts like his heart has not been strangely warmed. <laughs> well, thank you. Sorry, I didn't mean to completely derail with one offhand comment. But... Yeah, we, we just have gotten to know you too well over the years, Peter. <laughs> And we love you. You're awesome. Yeah, this is very true. The, the feeling is mutual. <laughs> he says with absolutely no conviction whatsoever. <laughs> hey! <laughs> hey, hey, he's that. the one. Hey, hey, he is a lovable guy. He'll let you kiss him without even blushing. <laughs> yeah, you've even got photo evidence of that from the one time you were at Fear the Con with Grant and me. Hey, hey, you know, I'm just being biblical. <laughs> Greet your brethren with a holy kiss. <laughs> and, you know, people say we United Methodists don't follow the Bible. That's the problem. When we follow the Bible, everybody gets mad at us. <laughs> Come here and give your big preacher uh, friend a kiss. He gave me a smooch on the cheek, and I was like, all right, that's kind of, that's a little different, but I'll go with it. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but it's so funny because, like, I realized this, just as an aside, sorry. Like, in the Midwest, that is so uncomfortable for people. When we were in the UK, that was very common. <laughs> cultural stuff is it cultural, is. yo. Yeah. It is. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. Well, well, it is also really weird when you have this almost six foot tall, uh, I won't say how much I weigh, but I'm a pretty heavy guy, you know, burly Southern man who often has a draw come up to you and say, give me a hug and a kiss, boy. <laughs> that, that's just scary. I Notice I do not do that to the ladies. I always say, would you mind if I gave you a hug? Do you mind if I give you a kiss on the cheek? But when I met Peter and Grant, it was just like, boy, if y'all come here, yeah. come on now. It's not even exaggerating. <laughs> I am not exactly. We were, we were summarily mauled by Derek. <laughs> <laughs> oh, My lord, look at the size of that preacher coming at conversation. me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, as you can tell, I'm also very good friends with these two. So. Uh, uh, um, to, okay. to, to try to draw back to <laughs> our topic at hand, and just uh, like specifically to gaming, because Derek, you mentioned something offshooting off of D&D. With video games, what I've noticed both in tabletop gaming and video games um, is that I'm finding more developers are creating games that are specifically curbing people from using or making violent decisions. So I just had recently reviewed a game a couple months ago called Wander Song, and you you don't you kill anybody. You literally befriend all of your enemies by singing to them. You're a bard. And the oh, whole, oh my Lord. it's amazing. Oh. And, and the entire premise of the game is that you're not technically chosen by the goddess in the game as the hero. You're not designated for that role. And he's hurt. The main character's kind of hurt by that. And he keeps being told by like all villagers he comes across that he's not useful. It's nice that he can sing, but he's not really like meant to be anything. And he ends up saving the world um, just through song and kindness, ultimately. And it's a beautiful oh. game because at the end of it, you have the entire of creation celebrating and joining in this earth song um, and, and like celebrating the fact that they were given mercy by this bard because he befriended mm. them and tried to like utilize their natural skills as opposed to vanquishing them. And you do meet the hero later and she can't handle the fact that there is somebody that might be undoing what her work is to do. Um, 
and it's just it's such an incredible game um and it really pushes in it drives in that idea of of a reward for vanquishing heroes as well because when you're playing there's a point when when you do meet the hero and she's doing what she does best which is wield a sword she's getting a bunch of um like on xbox she's getting a bunch of rewards for doing these things so you keep getting like the xbox notification for doing achievements but they're all her achievements you're not doing anything so every time she wins she gets an achievement it comes up on your screen as you as if you've done something but you've done nothing to earn that and it has absolutely nothing to do with your gameplay or your skill and i found that absolutely fascinating that the devs thought to include that in the programming of the game and i found that more and more often um in tabletop as well to to make the party or the characters um agents of either peace or if it's like a horror game feel completely helpless to violence to understand what that feels like to some degree. Boy, I can't wait until you get your hands on Spec Ops the line. I'm so excited. You're going to you're going to have some thoughts about that too cuz oh, I believe it. <laughs> there's there's a lot of stuff about violence in that game. Maybe we can have you back on after you've played that and talk about that cuz I don't want to spoil that one right now even <laughs> though it's an older game. Sure. But I definitely want to hear what you have to say about that. So I think interestingly, as we're talking around this, we are kind of getting back to agreeing with Joseph in a lot of ways. I think we just kind of have the caveat of don't go to violence first, right? Like all of these other, um, the converting, the redevoting, um, that's really kind of what we're supposed to do. Like, you mm -hmm. know, use, use the more uh, transformative or constructive ways of you know, taking evil and making it not evil anymore, turning, as Derek said, the weeds into wheat um, instead mm -hmm. of just cutting the weeds down and chucking them ourselves. Because, I mean, if there's one thing that I can take for sure out of that parable, it's that weeding is not our job, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Right. Uh, but we are so good at it. <laughs> right we think we are anyway <laughs> exactly yeah I'm, I'm not going to get into my critique of how the church has weed eat, has had too much weed eater in it for for way <laughs> too long we we've really been good at uh trying to chop it down and uh sometimes we've even wiped out the whole field so we could replant yeah and the problem yeah. is then all we do is replant nothing but tares <laughs> yeah right. yeah you yeah. get a, a whole field of dandelions that think that they're wheat plants <laughs> yeah uh you know and, and hopefully i'm but well, i want to stay on the gaming for a second before I, I get into to some redemption one of the things ashley mentioned earlier i was thinking about when you were talking peter that's really important that has helped me in games is getting into headspace that's not my own headspace. Uh, and one of the things, you know, growing up in the culture I grew up in where violence was often considered the answer, uh, you know, I saw it in movies, saw it in TV, grew up with D&D &D in the 80s and always seeing violence as the answer. Uh, later on, as I got older and I was still playing D&D &D or got back into D&D, &D, I started trying to play characters that were less violent and that wanted less violent solutions. And that was not like me at the time, you know, uh, you know, uh, 
it might have been a little bit like me. It was a part of just my own personal nature. But I, I intentionally played those characters so I could get into that headspace. And then there have been times now, because, you know, I'm much more nonviolent person than I used to be. And now I'll get into games um, where I'm playing more violent characters so that I can remember what that's like and what it's like to be in that headspace. It helps me to understand people better. Uh, that's one of the reasons I sometimes like to play broken characters or characters with a broken backstory. Because if I play a character who is broken, who has been hurt and who has been abused, I, I don't want to forget that that person who has experienced that may react violently and that's okay. It's okay for them to work through that because they are working through that. I mean, you can't always tell someone. I mean, the worst thing you can do is tell someone who has been abused and been mistreated that violence isn't the answer. Mm -hmm. Because I, I mean, I before preparing for this podcast, I was, uh, you know, I, I there's a wonderful book. It's called. Phyllis Tribble and Texts of Terror. It's a great book, and it deals with a number of texts of terror. And I, I pulled up my copy I had on the Kindle uh, to look through it, and it didn't have the specific passage I was looking for. And the passage I, I, I was looking for is the one, it's in Genesis 34, uh, where uh, Dinah is raped. And her brother's basically go to the the tribe of the people of the man was a part of who raped their sister and said to them be circumcised and he can marry our our sister and you can become a part of our tribe and we'll intermarry and do all of these things and they say okay cool we'll do that and so all the men are circumcised and while the men are healing up Dinah's brothers and family all come in, and what do they do? They kill them. They kill them. Now, you know, there are multiple ways of approaching that, that scripture, and uh, I've seen some wonderful feminists do some great work on that because basically, uh, <laughs> you know, to look at it from a feminist perspective, Dinah's agency is totally ignored. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just men making the decisions the whole time. Uh, but I'm not going to go into that. that. That's a whole nother show right there. Uh, but, but one of the key things is, is if we just look at it from a human element, if we just look at it, how would I feel if someone did this to my sister? How would I do that? Now, growing up a good Southern boy, my sister would have probably told me, Derek, you and your brother, <laughs> you know, y'all go out there and kill those <laughs> censored for family content. My sister would, I know my sister. She'd have told me to kill him. And she'd have said, let me go with you. And we would have probably done it. At the very least, they wouldn't have never walked again. I mean, that's just would have been our Southern boy response to that. So I'm not saying that's right or correct response. I'm not saying that's a good response, but I'm saying getting into that headspace helps me understand someone who is struggling with what's going on. 
and to tell them their feelings of anger and their desire to respond against that is inappropriate is just as cruel on my part to tell them, hey, you're not reacting appropriately to this. How do you tell someone who has experienced this pain and this hurt their reactions are inappropriate? We have to, to care for them and to love them. How do we respond? Now, of course, you read the biblical story. It goes worse. They responded horribly. They killed a whole tribe of people for the transgressions of one person, and then they stole all their women and children and took them with them. Yeah. I mean, so they became you know, the thing that they hated in the process of getting their vengeance. Exactly. And I think this is one of the things we can see in biblical stories a lot of times. Just because a story... Uh, there, uh, uh, and, and correct me if I'm misusing this word, often in these biblical stories, they're descriptive, not proscriptive. Right. They're not telling us that we should act this way. They're describing how people have acted. And we are left to make a moral judgment from that. And, uh, you know, their father, Jacob, said, hey, you guys have done something horrible here. Jacob, though, even though we can look at what Jacob said, that you did something horrible, he Jacob's basic thing is, this is really going to make us look bad to the other tribes. That's all he cared about. Because it's Jacob, after all. You know, he's right. a big one on appearance. Uh, but this is the deal that you've got going on there. And so uh, if you're running games appropriately, I think that, you know, uh, there are shades of gray you can bring into a game. But then, as Ashley said, sometimes, you know, uh, you don't get to play together enough. And so if you're playing in a game where there's kill stuff and take its loot, just make sure that the monsters are, are, are totally irredeemable. Uh, that's why I love <laughs> playing in Call of Cthulhu. I mean, there, you're there, not going to redeem no, a Shoggoth. <laughs> you're not redeeming the Shoggoth. Uh, I don't, That's just quitter you know, stock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that hound well, of Tindalos can be a puppy. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, well, you could redeem a half Shoggoth. If they've mated with humans, you can redeem those. <laughs> you know, And there's some of that in Lovecraftian work. Lovecraftian work, sometimes the redemption there are with these half half alien-esque people, these humans who have mated with these creatures, they see the darkness within themselves and the closest they can come to redemption is ending themselves. For them, that's redemption, but that's still letting their humanity win out over the darkness that's within them. Yeah. Although, uh, if we're going to yeah. unpack all the problems in Lovecraft, we're going to need a whole other episode. Uh, you need a you need a podcast <laughs> by itself yeah. to unpack. Uh, I, I, you could do three years trying to unpack uh, Lovecraft. But but so, again, that's why I enjoy playing in Call of Cthulhu with, you know, because I live in a world where there are so many gray moral choices. I live in a world where there are people across the spectrum I'm dealing with. I mean, I'm dealing with with middle-class folks, upper-middle-class folks. I'm dealing with people stuck in systemic poverty. I'm dealing with their children. I, I live in a community where, where I have people attending our church who probably make six figures, and then I've got drug houses right across the street from where I live. 
And so there are so many shades of gray. There's so many nuances going on. For me, sometimes I need to play in in a game where everything's either black and white or everything is just so hopeless that we're just going to go insane or die. (laughs) (laughs) And that's my outlet. That's my outlet. Insanity and death. So. There you go. Wow. Ashley, I can see not only the gears turning over your head, but I've seen several gears come and attach themselves to the cluster. So, <laughs> Yeah, I just, um, one, that's a, Text of Terror is a, a great book, and I'm so glad that you brought it up. Another book that I would suggest for anybody who's who's interested in unpacking, especially a lot of the Old Testament texts, um, more for this specific purpose, um, is a book called God Behaving Badly is the God of the Old Testament Angry, Sexist, and Racist. It's by David T. Lamb. Um, and I wish I had my copy on me. It's actually in storage currently. Um, but it's just an excellent it's like primer. It's very approachable for anybody who's wanting to unpack a lot of these things. Um, and Derek, you mentioned specifically, you know, you live in a morally gray world. Lucky for us, so did Christ. Um, and Amen. Yeah. And so I find it really interesting then that when the Pharisees asked him, um, you know, teacher, which is the greatest commandment, ultimately. He responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself, right? So what? who is my neighbor, one? And do I mean in physical close proximity to me? Do I mean anybody that I meet? And do I have to vet them before they become my neighbor? So what does it look like to love whomever ends up becoming my neighbor? Um, and I think when it comes to nonviolence, um, because there are just a few things that have been said that I would personally disagree with, but I understand the intent behind them. Um, and, and I've come to this point through my own process of unpacking my own mental health, like through, through therapy and through pastoral care and such. And one of the questions that was asked of me once when I was unpacking a history of depression and anxiety, um, we were talking about suicidal ideation. Not mine, but I had a friend who had committed suicide and I was struggling with that, right? And the, the person I was talking to um, made a good point. They were like, okay, so just consider the life that, that this person considered taking, you have to understand, wasn't theirs to take in the first place. It's, it's God's. So if I think about life, my life as not being my own, but being God's, I can't take my own life. So what gives me the right to take someone else's? And I have to wrestle with that every day, even when I'm in danger. And there have been places we've lived that haven't been the safest. Um, and I've been in positions that haven't been the safest. And I've had those thoughts of, okay, what am I going to do in this moment? Am I going to fight or am I going to fly or am I going to go into, you know, some sort of goat-like paralysis? Um, and that's a difficult choice to make. Um, but when I think of that concept of loving my neighbor as myself, regardless of who my neighbor is, and considering who's, who, who uh, owns the lives around me, including my own, um, I have to forfeit that assumed uh, responsibility to end or, or decommission somebody, as it were. And I do struggle with that. Because I know, like Derek's brought up, that is a difficult position to be in. And if you're being threatened or abused, you can't ask somebody to not defend themselves. 
I just think it's a lot trickier than some are willing to go. And it's easy to put up hypotheticals um, to, to make our moral choices easier. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's just something to think on and chew on more. And gaming-wise, yeah, it's a game. You're, you're unpacking these things for a reason, and games are meant to be fun. So obviously do what's within your comfort zone. But that's just kind of my two cents plus off. <laughs> no, no, I, I know exactly where you're coming from because yeah. th- those are things I've had to wrestle with personally. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, I, I tell people I'm not a pacifist, mm-hmm. but in my personal life, I'm nonviolent. Right. And, and the only reason I really say that is because I know there are times in my life I might have to respond sure. with force. Mm-hmm. It, but the thing is, and I really like what you had to say, my life is not my own, it's God's, and that means someone else's life is not their own, it's God's life. And so I came, it, I wrestled with this. I remember I was wrestling this when I took Christian ethics back in the day, yeah. uh, the first time in my 20s at a very, very conservative school. And I was very, very conservative at that time, and our professor was making us really think about the death penalty mm-hmm. and things like that. And I, I was like ticked off because <laughs> I was like, does he, he doesn't believe in the death penalty. Christians are supposed to believe in the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I've come a long way since then. And, uh, and so I struggled with that and wrestled with it in decades actually. And I finally came to the conclude, started coming to conclusions after I had children and had been married for a few years And I said, you know what? I said, if someone comes at me and they want to kill me, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I I might try and subdue them. I might try and stop them. But I will not react with lethal violence. Mm -hmm. But if they're coming after my family, they would, that's, if they come after my wife or my children or someone who's a friend or something like that, and it's within my power to stop them and it might take lethal violence to stop them, then I have to do that. I have to care for them. Yeah. Now, I'm again, I'm not talking on a national level. I'm not a politician. I'm not in the military. I'm, I'm talking about just on a personal level. Mm-hmm. It's my job to save and protect my family and my friends. Then I, I got asked, asked one of those tough questions because you know preachers people love to ask us those questions that really screw with our heads and someone said well what if they're just going to mess you up and i said what do you mean and and i knew examples of that Mm -hmm. you know what if they're going to hospitalize you or something like that i was like oh my lord you know what if what if i am hospitalized uh you know, what if I am hospitalized and then, you know, my wife's got to make those tough decisions or cost us financially because of health care. And my response to that person was, and I think still my response, I'm going to make sure they kill me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm going to make sure they kill me because I got a good life insurance policy. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to make sure that that I'm gone. So so that's so I had to look at it that way. You know, yes, to save my own life. I would not respond lethally, mm-hmm. but to save the life of someone placed in my care, if it required a lethal response, sadly, sadly, I would have to respond that way. Yeah. And and, and, and so that's why I say, you know, 
I, I, I would love to be a pacifist, a true pacifist, mm. but I'm not truly a pacifist. I'm just nonviolent. Well, and that's the thing. I don't think anyone's truly a pacifist until it's tested, right? Like, you can only theorize so far until you're in a situation. And that's the hardest part. That's the proving ground. And I think you and I are, like, basically two sides of the same coin. And I would even say that, like, nonviolent pacifist sort of positions are a spectrum rather than a like a, a like two opposing well i know how much you love your husband and i know if anybody messed with alan you'd take him out so. <laughs> yeah, i would but have that's... the hardest time and vice versa he's like he's a gun owner <laughs> oh. he inherited all of his dad's guns and that took yeah. me a long time to just even be borderline comfortable with and we had like a lot of conversations about that but i mean he came from a hunting family and he loved shooting like trick shot and, and everything like that so um, that's funny because just a few years ago I got rid of my last gun because I didn't want a gun in the home and it was a family heirloom yeah <laughs> that my it was my father's gun mm -hmm. and I sold it I could not keep it around anymore so see that's that's how how much how I am but I collect knives so <laughs> right, exactly. so figure that one out yeah all right so I want to throw one more thing I uh, we're running a little bit long here but I still Still want to hear you guys' oh, thoughts what? about oh, this. Oh, darn. Long? Yeah, I'm yeah, shocked. gee, what a shock. This is panel. <laughs> I was completely unprepared for this eventuality and didn't <laughs> at all think it was a possibility. I'm, I'm so surprised. Um, <laughs> okay, so we've been talking a lot about, like, you know, we are... We're kind of in a player role for most of this discussion. Like, you know, what are, what are we doing as, you know, player characters or what are we doing in the real world? I want to flip this because this I've been thinking about this as you two have been talking. What a what do we do when we're framing the story? What do we do when we're the GM? Mm -hmm. Because I I've kind of come around to the realization that like most of the sessions of the game that I'm running include a pretty good sized you know takes a, an hour or two to finish set piece battle, mm -hmm. and it's I don't you know once the characters are in that situation it's probably going to happen, and so it's like what kind of what kind of messaging are we sending with that particular set of tropes? Like if if we're setting up these situations where the only thing that you can do to to have the same characters in the game next week is to go along with this fight scene. How does that square with what we've been saying? Oh, man, uh, you know, you say this and I'm in the midst of prepping these Call of Cthulhu, two Call of Cthulhu games for GaryCon, and there's going to be some fighting involved. But, okay, I hope nobody that plays in the game listens to this, but one of the big, bad, evil guys, okay, I'm a big Credence Clearwater Revival fan. So one of, of the scenarios is called, what's that? I said, I said, of course you are. <laughs> of course I am. And so one of the scenarios is called uh, Born on the Bayou, and the other set is scenario is called Bad Moon on the Rise. And uh, in the Born on the Bayou set scenario, I already have the big bad evil guy pulled out, the monster. And they're going to have to defeat it one way or another. Right? It's a Scooby-Doo Cthulhu game, so it's going to be funny and have things like that. And those are the type of games I like to run. I like to run pulpy games with a pulpy feel with some humor. If you guys can't tell, I like humor. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so the big bad evil monster is going to be a giant crawfish. 
Okay. And there, there is going to be a pot of boiling butter around, yes. you know? And so, you know, part of that is how do I prep that scenario? Well, there's going to be a human involved and it's Scooby-Doo. So hopefully the players won't try and kill the human, but they will destroy the monster because in a, in games like Cthulhu, human life is to be valued and human life when i run cthulhu i'm going to value the human life in it now on the other hand i will be running uh, the other game i'm going to be running at gary con is a DD cartoon game based off the dungeons and dragons cartoon from the 1980s if you'll notice in the 1980s they fought monsters time and time again, and without going backwards into the myth of redemptive violence, they never killed any of those monsters. And so while there will be combat, and I'm prepping that, the idea will be it's like the D&D cartoon from the 1980s. These monsters will not be killed. That's how I prep those games. Um, when I, If I ever run extended games... Uh, especially, I, I want to make sure that sentient life is valued. And I have done that. I did that in a campaign. Uh, you know, I, I ran a campaign once uh, based off the Sinister Secret Assault Marsh long before 5th edition came out. And I had some players who were just some murder hobos. And <laughs> they killed a 10-year-old cabin boy. Oh, on the ship and that made me mad yeah it would have made me mad too mm -hmm. and so what i did was i was like okay y'all just screwed the plot up big time so here's what's gonna happen the cowboy boy disappears in a burst of magical power and basically had that ch immediately changed him on the fly to where you basically destroyed the avatar of a demigod because I was that ticked off. Don't don't kill children in my games, and they learned they that changed the course of the game. Because it it was at that point I had not gone back into ministry. I was a repo man at the time. I was a hard nosed repo guy. But you don't mess with kids. I will f you up. <laughs> and uh, and so I changed the tone of the game totally. And so now. When they just out and out killed something, and, and I ended up doing this with this one one NPC they killed, I turned this other NPC into a revenant who was stalking them <laughs> because they killed it. They killed them, and, and this revenant is now coming after them for revenge. And so what I I learned at that time, and this was, wait, how old am I now? Oh my <laughs> lord, this was in this was in this was in I was. How old was I? Oh, oh my gosh, this was 16 <laughs> years ago. Derek's having a minute ago. here. <laughs> this, this was 16 years ago. 16 years ago. Oh my gosh, that means some of those players are now in their 30s. God. Oh, <laughs> oh man, I'm old now. I'm old. I turned 50 this year. I'm, I'm old. <laughs> so th this was 16 years ago. And it, at that point, it, it was at that point, I'm a grown man. And I'm realizing, you know, when I run a and d session, there will be consequences for your actions. And those consequences have 
broader meaning in the game world. They affect what's happening. They affect how NPCs react to you. Mm -hmm. And and now I see that as a mechanic in a lot of video games. Uh, I've been playing Battletech. That's actually a, a mechanic now. How react, you know, Mass Effect, all these other games, how you react toward another character and how you treat other people uh, dictate how they respond to you. And I started doing that. I remember, I, I remember the moment it happened. It was like a light bulb went off in my head. I was like, oh my goodness, why hadn't I been doing this for, you know? And, and, and so I changed, I changed my ways. I repented <laughs> of, of my GMing style and, and adopted a new and better, more narrative form of play. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There we go. <sighs> we could probably keep going for another three hours, but, uh, mm -hmm. At some point, somebody's going to have to edit this thing, so we should probably wrap it up here. <laughs> Any uh, closing thoughts from either of you that you want to make sure you get on the record before we shut this one down? Or oh, Shoot, I'm worried that if I give closing thoughts, it's going to be like another half hour of monologue. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it, Ashley. Come on, do it, do it. <laughs> I do it. I think the last time was only about five minutes. Go ahead. No, fair enough. <laughs> I guess... I. One thing that I've just been kind of noodling today, even just in preparation for this episode, is this idea of um, nonviolence and pacifism as calling. I do think that because we worship and serve a savior that did die at the hands of his enemies, that some form of nonviolence is is the calling of all Christians. I do theologically believe that. So I think Derek's yeah. on the money for a lot of what he's saying. Yeah, I, I think so too. Right? But I I also think that the brand of pacifism that I've been describing is, and I'm wondering this because I don't have anything to back it up other than like some sort of like tradition in history, but nothing like really fully fleshed out. It's just a thought I had like maybe an hour ago. Um, is this idea of pacifism as like a separate calling, just like a monastic calling or a priestly calling mm. or anything like that? And I do yes. think it's it's particularly and interestingly, especially for our time, and maybe not just for our time if you look at history, um, it's particularly countercultural to choose nonviolence in all things, even to the detriment of yourself and the things that you value. Mm. And Alan and I talk about this a lot because, like you said, if anyone attacked Alan, I'd be hard pressed not to react in some way. <laughs> and so it's just something that I, I'm wondering if if there are those that are called to it to represent another way, something that we can mm. look forward to, you know, in the eschaton. Um, and it's something that I certainly hope for. Like when I, when I say that I'm a pacifist, it's cause I, I endeavor to be Christ-like and peace-giving and peacemaking, um, and to react in a way that, that recognizes the dignity in all humanity, like, like Derek said, all sentient life. Um, so it's something that I'm still praying through, something that I still really like, meditate on and think about. I mean, we, we have examples like St. Ignatius of Loyola, you know, where he hangs up his sword at the altar of, of Mary, you know, when he's praying mm. and thinking about next steps. And granted, a lot of wow. his combat was, was wrapped up in his own pride and his own prowess at being a soldier. So there's some other things wrapped up in that. But I do think that's a really striking image of a man who, who has been injured in battle and has seen violence and decides to hang it up to serve Christ. And I, and I, that just, that has stuck with me since I, 
since I've you know studied that story, um, and I and I wonder what the world would be like if we did value nonviolence more than we trusted our ability to assess what justice looks like uh, for ourselves. Well, and I, I think it's also kind of worth noting as we're wrapping this up, like um, as you were talking, Ashley, you know, especially about St. Ignatius, I just, I go back to like Isaiah 2, 4, uh, let me get DESV here because I like this one. He shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Yeah. Mm. I can't even read that passage without getting choked up halfway through. Right, uh, yeah. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and they neither shall they learn war anymore. That is probably my my favorite passage as well. Uh, you know, it's interesting you use that that passage, Peter, because uh, one of my favorite authors is N.T. Wright. And uh, while I don't always agree with Tom Wright, uh, he shares an illustration of how a country took their weapons. I believe it was a country in Africa. I'm not sure, but it was a country. They took their weapons and based on that passage of scripture, they turned them into that, a statue of, of plowshares. Mm. Wow. And, you know, these were, were guns and machine guns and all of these things. And while we look at that, as an eschatological or future promise. Can you imagine what our world would be like if we could, you know, without getting into a huge debate here, but if we could take all the money we put into military spending, if every country could do that, we could feed every person on the place face of this earth and we could provide health care for every person on the face of this earth. We know that's not feasibly possible, but my God, if that's something we could work for as nations and as people and take all that money and energy we put into a desire for war and protection and take that money, that energy and time and put it in a desire to provide food, clothing, and health care for others. What would that world look like? Yeah. And that is a powerful, powerful thought. Well, I think that's probably a good note to close this one out on. Uh, Derek, Ashley, thank you both so much for coming on at relatively short notice. I, I mentioned that I would probably be doing this occasionally back uh, in November when we started transferring some admin control over, and I'm very grateful for you both just jumping in on this one. Uh, I only gave you a couple of days, and this was a good episode. So I think we're going to leave it there from all of us here and my absent co-hosts. Have a good one, folks. Thank you. Bye. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. 
To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.